Well, good morning, guys. You guys look so good today. I want to read today out of the uh, gospel of Matthew. Um, if you guys have been with us on Sunday mornings, um, my name is Brian, one of the pastors at Calvary Slow. We've actually been teaching through uh, a little mini-series, uh, really looking at four aspects of uh, really important events of the life of Jesus. We looked at his suffering. Uh, we looked at his death and burial. Today, obviously, we're looking at the very important uh, event called the resurrection. Next week, we'll uh, finish this little series before we jump back into a series that we've been going through, is the book of Acts, uh, looking at what's called the ascension. The fact that Jesus is not just risen from the dead, but that he is truly indeed a king, like the video so uh, well pointed out. So we've been looking at really the story of Matthew. And I'm going to pick up the story in the book of Matthew uh, and you guys can follow along if you would. If you guys have Bibles, you can open up there. If you have it on an app, you can uh, uh, flick over there and we will read through this. If not, we will have it up on the screen. So let's read the story. I'll pick it up at around verse 28. Uh, read through it, three main chunks, and then we'll begin to look at it, a handful of aspects about the story. And then uh, my gift to you guys uh, today um, is my sermon will be short. You're welcome. <laughs> verse 1 says this of chapter 28 in the book of Matthew. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. And the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and they became like dead men. But the angel then said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen. And he has said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the other disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb and with fear and great joy or terror and great joy. They ran to tell the other disciples, behold, Jesus met them and he said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and then they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers uh, to go to Galilee and there... They will see me. Jump down a little bit further to about verse 16. And we wrap this up. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw that they had worshipped him, uh, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray and we'll jump in. God, thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you that we celebrate not a dead king, but a risen Lord. And God, I pray that the truth, the reality of this event would then begin to become real and apparent for us right now, today, in 2017. For some, in the midst of 2017, surrounded by great suffering and confusion and pain and hurt. Perhaps the consequences of circumstances way beyond their control. For others, perhaps the consequences of their own 
misdeeds and sinful actions. God, we pray that today that the reality of the resurrection would give us hope in life right now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in brief, what I want to look at today are just really three quick, simple things. And it has to do with this resurrection. And I want to basically make three statements. Then I'll ask three questions as to how those three statements can be true. And then I'll attempt to give three answers as to why I think those three questions or three assessments or assumptions are true. Here's the question. Number one, the resurrection will challenge, or not questions, but statements. Uh, The resurrection will challenge your mind and reshape how you think. Second uh, uh, assessment or assumption is the resurrection could change your heart and reshape what you love. The third is the resurrection will give you new purpose and ultimately will reshape how you live. Those are the three things. Number one, let's take a look at this. The resurrection will challenge your mind and reshape how you think. So how? How will it do that? How will the resurrection challenge how we think? In other words, mentally, how we process information, how we process data. And what the Bible is basically teaching, it's, it cannot be missed, is that it takes for granted that the resurrection actually happened. In other words, it's an event. If you read the story, you read how it unpacks, how it unfolds, it reads like an actual bi- biography. It reads like a story, uh, an actual narrative that's being spelled out. Because one of the things, one of the hallmarks that you notice within a story are, are some of the players that are part of this. For example, some of the details of the story that can't be uh, overlooked. Number one is the testimony of women. Now again, if you are familiar with first century, you know that women for the most part, and again, this is part of a, a, a patriarchal, in some ways sexist culture and society, women's opinions were not actually valued in the way that they are valued in 2017. Or it should be valued in 2017. But back in that day, they just simply weren't. It's the way that things were. So it's ironic, it's shocking actually, that the story that we just read actually involves a group, not of men, but the testimony of women. And according to early first century writers and people, some that actually were hostile towards Christianity, basically used the story to say, see, this is why we can discredit the reality of the resurrection. Because it uses women as eyewitnesses. But most scholars today would basically just look at it and be like, the fact that there are women giving their testimony or the eyewitness account validates the fact. Why, if you are trying to create a myth, why, if you're trying to create a story or fabricate some sort of uh, alter narrative, why, if you're trying to start or launch a brand new religion, why would you use within that first century context the testimony of people that are discredited? And the only answer really that comes back is it happened. It's just, it is what it is. It's how it unfolded. It's how the drama, how the narrative, how the reality, how the circumstances actually took place. Another thing is, even though it's not mentioned here in the story, is uh, Jesus in other gospel accounts actually tells uh, these people there at the early tomb, go tell the others and Peter. So Jesus actually makes a special emphasis to uh, go tell Peter. Why does Jesus do that? And again, most scholars recognize is that in the story, if you're familiar with the story, the, the, one of the 
foremost leaders in the early church was Peter. If you're familiar with the Jesus story, you know, that, you know who Peter was. Peter was one of those guys. He was a fisherman. So I imagine him burly, brawny, you know, a guy with big forearms, strong, healthy, probably not the most uh, uh, suave type of a guy. But he nonetheless was a guy that would speak and then oftentimes afterwards think. He was always putting his foot in his mouth. And Peter would then go on to become really one of the foremost leaders in the early church. But prior to all that took place, Peter was one of the most colossal failures in the story of Jesus. He's actually, there's more graphic data and details described about about Peter's failure than any other New Testament writer. Why, if you're trying to fabricate a religion or a story or a narrative... And take, why would you take the, the, the most profound, the most uh, uh, elevated leader, or the most important leader in the early church, and, and somehow give the data about his misgivings or failures, especially in a shame and honor culture? Again, the cultural surroundings is everything rose or fell based upon how you conducted yourself. Your honor ability was very significant and very important. So if you, were, if you uh, conducted yourself in a shameful manner... That actually would become a major spot on your character, which would then discredit your ability to lead anything. But the story of the Bible about Jesus' resurrection is that Jesus says, go tell the others. And Peter, because Peter is about to be restored. See, the whole point is, is that all of these events actually happened. The data, the information that's available to us is that this story that's being unpacked for us actually took took place. It was a historical fact that happened. So again, if you allow the data, the information to challenge you, it will challenge you. You, uh, Otherwise, if you are wanting to choose to remain in a skeptical status, you have to do something with this. One other final thing is the fact of the matter is, is that whatever happened here on this day radically changed the course of history. The Roman Empire was radically impacted. There was a small group of people that were radically impacted that went on to go on to change the world. So that today, there are, Christianity is the largest influence upon the planet. Now, some would say, well, it's been influenced for bad. There's been some bad things. Yes, part of that is because human beings have been the ones that carry that. We are flawed. We're failed. And oftentimes, we do not conduct ourselves in any form of clear alignment with the heart and the character of God. So, yes, there are bad things that oftentimes people do in the name of God, which must be repented from and recognized and acknowledged. But the fact of the matter is, is that something happened. Something this day took place that radically altered the course of history. So you have to kind of work from the event backwards and ask... In other words, from cause and effect, or from effect back to cause. The effect was the world was changed. Work backwards to the uh, cause. What was the cause that created the effect? And most scholars have to look at this and say, what happened was, what the Bible account is, is that Jesus actually rose again from the dead. Now, the fact is, mere data, mere information will not radically change your heart. But if you are arguing from a spot of skepticism, you have to think about the data. You have to think about the information. So the second thing I want to look at is not only one, the resurrection will ultimately challenge your mind and reshape how you think if you allow it, if you can look at it with intellectual integrity and honesty, or you have to think of some answers. How did this movement begin to get traction in this ancient, uh, patriarchal, sexist, Um, honor-shame 
culture, how did it begin to get traction? The second thing is not only the resurrection will challenge your mind and reshape how you think. The second thing is that the resurrection could change your heart and reshape what you love. Where do I get that from? Well, I get that from the passage that we just read. So what we see is the way that it can actually change us. I say could. is because there's oftentimes people that can have some sort of a mental uh, comprehension or acceptance of the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. But that's all it is. It's just information. It never really truly travels into their heart and brings about true transformation in their lives. So how could this change? Well, it could change, your heart could change by ultimately receiving Jesus' word of greeting. So in the passage, what we just read is that Jesus comes to his disciples. And around verse uh, 9, it says that when Jesus actually interacts with his disciples, he comes to them. And what I find fascinating about this is what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, boo. That would be awesome, right? He's resurrected from the dead. They're not expecting to be alive. Jesus could have played the ghost, you know, motif. Boo. It's, it's me. I'm going to scare you. Jesus could have played the vindictive, angry person that has been taken advantage of, that has been betrayed, because that's exactly what happened. All of his followers turned their backs on him. All of them abandoned him. All of them, at some point, lost a concept of trust in what he said. And we know that because of the details of the story. One of the details, simple details, is that it says that they came to Jesus on, or Jesus' tomb on that morning to anoint his body with spices. What what was that all about? Well, that was an ancient custom that was basically a way of just showing, uh, paying homage, showing honor and respect to a fallen leader. Now, now why is that shocking? Well, throughout Jesus' ministry, he would oftentimes communicate to his followers. He'd be like, guys, look. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to unfold. I'm going to give you my itinerary. We're going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And the third day I'm going to rise again. He said this on numerous occasions. And the disciples did nothing more than really give, at, at best, a gratuitous nod. Yeah, whatever. Or they actually combated Jesus over that. And they're like, no, you're not going to die. You will not, this will not happen to you. And Jesus is like, you're wrong. Get behind me, Satan, is one of the times he said that to Peter. But the point of the matter is, Jesus told them, here's my itinerary. Here's what's going to happen. I will suffer. I will die. I will go in a tomb. Third day, I will rise again. And here's Mary and these others. At the tomb, not waiting to welcome Jesus into the world, but to appoint and anoint, I should say, a dead body. The point I would make, everybody failed. Everybody let him down. Everybody didn't trust him to some degree. But what we see with Jesus, ultimately, is he greets him. He welcomes him. And the word that he gives is just a common greeting. Greetings. He's not angry. He's not mad. It's, it's a greeting that's rich. It's filled with grace and kindness and acceptance and love. Not vindictiveness, not anger. Think about it. Put yourself in that position. If you had unlimited resources and power and you had this following of people that every last one of them failed you, let you down, abandoned you, rejected you, whatever flavor, whatever layer they somehow failed you, and you die and now you come back victorious, what would be the first thing that we would do, you would do? I, you know, again, I can't speak for you, but I would probably pretty frustrated and upset at least, at minimum, 
At worst, it, I don't even want to tell you what I would do. But what, the fact of the matter is that's not at all how Jesus acts. He comes back with an incredible word of grace. See, at the end of the day, Christianity, what Christianity affirms and asserts is that our acceptance, our transformation, our salvation, our forgiveness, however you want to term it or coin it or use language to describe it, it is by definition a free gift from God. That's why New Testament language would be it is by grace we are saved. Mostly every other religion in the world basically would say salvation, acceptance, heaven, afterlife, whatever you want to describe it, is by way of strength, you know, might, power, is by way of knowledge, what you know, how you know, how diligent you've shown yourself to be an astute student, to study, to imbibe information, or in some ways uh, by effort, working hard, maintaining certain spiritual disciplines, fasting, avoiding certain immoralities, whatever the case is. But Christianity is the exact opposite. It says no matter how broken, no matter how much you don't know, no matter how much you fail, no matter how disorganized, how messed up, how messy, how defiled, how broken you are. Greetings. For some of you, you need to receive that word today. Imbibe it. Trust it. Let it go deep down into the very core of who you are. And let it begin to transform and change and reshape. To have some understanding to know that the very God who shaped and defined you, spoke you into existence. This God knows everything there is to be known about you. And yet his word is the same. Greetings. Come. Be a part of what I'm doing. It's always this invitation. And finally, we see that the resurrection, if you allow it, will give you a new purpose and ultimately reshape how you live. So again, challenge that assertion. How? How will it do that? Well, there's two things that what Jesus is going to say, and I would describe it this way. By giving you, number one, freedom from this world, Jesus states in this passage, uh, in uh, verse 10, uh, do not fear. In other passages throughout the gospel account, it also says, do not fear. Don't be afraid. Don't allow terror, fear to grip your heart. So freedom from this world, number one. Freedom for this world, number two. And this is where he says in verse 19, go. Go into all this world. So let's take a look at each one of these real quick and I'm done. Number one, freedom from this world. Jesus says, do not fear. I want to pause and just uh, probe and cause you to think about something. Have you ever thought about why oftentimes you and I uh, face suffering, death, physical maladies or ailments? Oftentimes with such terror and fear. Why we face loss of money, of job, of relationships in such a degree that it actually debilitates us or it cripples us or it brings us to a state of falling apart where we are coming undone. Have you ever wondered why oftentimes we respond to some of life's most graphic challenges in, in ways like that? Really, the answer why we oftentimes act that way is because we have believed a narrative 
that says something along those lines. Outside of this life, outside of this world, outside of my experience, outside of this relationship, outside of this job, outside of this career path, outside of where I live, outside of whatever, you fill in the blank, there's nothing else beyond. It's all I have. So we cling to it. And whenever we face the threaten, threatening loss of something, it immediately, if it is the ultimate thing, if whatever that is, is the ultimate thing in your life, it is, if it is the number one prioritized reality that you have given your heart, your soul, your affections, your mind to, if it's shaken, if it's threatened, we come undone. We fall into despair. We freak out. But if Jesus is number one, if Jesus is the one that captures our hearts, if what and who Jesus is and what God is up to in this world, if he is, the way someone would describe it, if he is our supreme and ultimate treasure, and all of these other things are important parts of our life, you know, having a career path, having a marriage, being in relationships, having things that are part of life, all of these are important parts of our life. But if Jesus is number one, when these things become threatened, yeah, they cause great uh, hardship and difficulty, but that's different from utter despair and coming undone. And this is why Jesus says to his disciples, look, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Don't allow fear to grip your heart. This is Jesus speaking a word to anyone who would listen. Him saying, look, I can give you freedom from this world. Secondly, freedom for this world. This is when Jesus in verse 19, he says to his disciples, go. Go into all the world and proclaim to announce this this really good news. I've come back. I'm alive. My kingdom has been launched. My kingdom is a good kingdom. My kingdom is a calm. My kingdom is one that has come to restore and reorder this world. So I want to finish on this thought to consider, think about. Belief in the resurrection ultimately. And there's so many ways. In fact, if you want to think about it this way, the rest of the New Testament. New Testament is kind of like this. It starts out with four uh, narratives. We would call these gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then actually a third one if you want to think of it. Or fourth one. I'm sorry. Fifth one if you want to think of it that way. The book of Acts. It's also another narrative. But the rest of the Bible book from that point forward is really the idea of working out. Okay, so Jesus is risen from the dead. What does that mean? That's the rest of the New Testament is working out in some form or another. How does this resurrected Jesus actually practically impact my job, my, my, my marriage, my relationships with others? How does it impact those people in my life that have deeply wounded me or hurt me or those that I have grudges or frustration or angst against? How does it impact or inform or transform the way I think about these things? And the rest of the New Testament is all about unpacking that reality of the resurrection in those areas. But the one thing that we know above and beyond all other things is that when Jesus, what resurrection means above and beyond anything else, is it means that Jesus physically died and physically rose. He didn't come back from the grave in a spirit body. And why is that important? Because what it tells us from that action, that God actually cares about this physical world. The aim of God's kingdom 
is not to somehow remove us, to rip us from planet Earth and launch us into some sort of ethereal zone we call heaven way out there for all eternity. That is not the Bible. The Bible story is heaven, that ethereal realm, is a momentary part prior to ultimate resurrection in which all those who are in Christ will be resurrected to new life. In which this world that has suffered under the grip of death, destruction, and sorrow, and betrayal, and hurt, and ruin, and vandalism will one day be restored. This earth matters to God. How do we know that? God rose again. Jesus from the dead in a physical body. Paul works that out and says... One day, God will do the same for all of creation. The very same thing he did for Jesus. And I'll finish with a story. Stories are good to finish with. There's a gal by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you may be familiar with her. She uh, was 18 years old and she jumped into a, I think it was a lake, and um, snapped her neck and has since then uh, been a quadriplegic. Um, she has not been able to obviously use her hands or her feet, and she's been in that uh, space uh, for, for many, many years. She is not only an incredible woman, but very, uh, in my opinion, an astute theologian that has thought long and hard about the subject of resurrection. But she was telling a story in one of her books about how at one point, shortly after she had uh, uh, suffered this incredible a loss of uh, any form of mobility and was pondering a future of living in a body that does not simply work. She went to a church. It was a church that part of its uh, liturgy had people uh, standing up and then kneeling down. And she was describing at one point how when she was looking out throughout the service of all these people, able bodies, being able to get on their knees, and she felt alienated. She felt mad and frustrated and Uh, marginalized and was thinking about this but then while the rest of the community was on their knees and she was the only one there confined to a wheelchair she was listening to what was being spoken and whatever it was that was being spoken had to do with the resurrection and later years later she would write this listen how she would describe this Johnny Erickson Tata would say this I suddenly realized that one day when I entered Jesus's presence the very first Thing I will be able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on my grateful, glorified knees and kneel quietly before his feet. And I'm going to stand on my feet and I'm going to dance. Can you imagine the hope that resurrection gives somebody who has a spinal cord injury like me and or someone who has broken hearts or broken bodies or broken anything in this physical world, the hope of resurrection says this world, in all of its brokenness, and all of its coming undone, and all of its taintedness, because of the result and effects of sin, stays are numbered. How do we know this? Because of the event in which God basically said this world as you know it, there's other forces at play that are way beyond your comprehension. How do we know? God broke through the barrier of death. Jesus is alive. And we celebrate that. Amen? Is that good news? That's good news. So, I want to finish 
And we're going to sing and celebrate this good news with a few more closing songs. So why don't we all stand and let's celebrate the fact that we have a God that is not in the grave, that is raising people up from the grave. The final thing to consider is that this good news always comes along with an invitation, always is about an invitation. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But it's an invitation for you to consider and think about. That no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, no matter what type of grief, suffering, shame, sorrow, fear, whatever it is that you are wrestling with today, my encouragement to you is to look at the resurrection. Look at the event. Wrestle through it. Think about it. Process it. Live your life through the lens of the fact that God broke something that day that has never been broken up until that point. Yes, there are moments where resuscitations happened. God brought people back. But ultimately what we see in Jesus is new creation. And all who follow Christ are being brought in, swept up by new creation. It's God's kingdom come to bring order to that which is disorderly. God's kingdom come to bring healing to that which is suffering and dying. God's kingdom come to bring forgiveness where you now, right now, currently feel nothing but defilement. My encouragement to you is to receive. Receive. That's what a gift is. That's what grace is. Grace, gift, is about simply stretching out your hands and saying, I'll take it. I receive it. So who we are, wherever we are, whatever you're struggling with, receive the hope, the gift that God offers today. Amen?